My name is Tom Abbott from the University of Warwick. The troubled Doha round trade negotiations have thrown into sharp focus concerns about the future of multilateral trade agreements. As of 2006, the talks remained stalled over a divide between developed nations and major developing countries. 2007 sees the launch of the Warwick Commission based at the University of Warwick. The Commission is tasked with analysing the future of the multilateral trade system following Doha. The Commission will bring together academics and practitioners from around the world to consider wider systemic and conceptual issues alongside the policy process. The Commission is chaired by the Honourable Monsieur Pierre Pettigrew, who joins us now. Pierre, the Commission will be examining the future of the multilateral trading system. Why is it important to make that assessment now? We have been learning a great deal in the last few years about the challenges, the strengths and the weaknesses of our trade regime. We have gone through a series of uh, successes, but more failures. If you compare GATT to the WTO, we do realize that the batting average of the GATT years was sort of better in a way, probably because the issues were easier, uh, both in terms of the membership and the very issues. Eliminating industrial tariffs is easier than going into the new, very complex issues we have to deal with. And the membership, as you rightly said in your introduction, um, is very much more different than it used to be. So after 12 years of WTO that had succeeded GATT, we do realize that trade ministers encounter more more difficulties and more failures. So I think it is important to, to for a commission, like the Warwick Commission, to to pause a little bit and to try to be helpful to uh, to, 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 to the community mm-hmm. and identify solutions to the difficulties we're encountering. What are those key difficulties? What are the, the, the issues that are preventing the talks well, from progressing? Well, they're there of two orders. Uh, you rightly pointed out to the north-south cleavage. And the, the, the GATT used to be, at the beginning, a club of, of very like-minded 23 countries, many of the Commonwealth countries, New Zealand, Australia, Canada, Britain, France, German countries that were of the same sort of level of development and same cultural backgrounds and this sort of thing. Now you have 147 members coming from countries of very different level of development, very different size. So you have what I call the north-south difficulties and uh, disparities, but you also have the east-west one between the Europeans and, and, and the Americans, two different conceptions of globalization. The Europeans always want things crafted in stone and rules and so you know, like rule-based institutions, where the whereas the Americans are more on uh, negotiations and ad hoc agreement and understanding and jurisprudence. So it's a diff- diff- very and the interests are very different as well. So you have two sets: the East, West, and the North, South. Is it getting too complex? Almost. I mean, you've indicated there that there are many different competing interests. Is it almost a problem that's too difficult to sort out? Well, the WTO has been so successful. It it has been by far the international institution that has been the most successful. If you compare to the other Bretton Woods institutions that were created after the Second World War, and people now come to expect a great deal about it. I mean, people like to dump on the WTO and criticize it, but it is precisely because it has been very successful. And the same people who criticize the WTO end up 
doing, uh, asking the WTO to deal with more issues. What are the very many people who are criticizing the WTO is saying the WTO has been so good, they won't say it in those words, with tariffs and with trade, why don't they deal with the environment? Why don't they deal with labor standards? Why don't they deal with the whole problems of the planet? So you have more and more people who want to bring into the WTO realm problems that are complex and that, but at the same time, it's a tribute to the organization that it has been so successful that it can probably help on a lot of fronts. It's difficult, though, to disassociate those elements from the kind of economic development, those issues around the environment and social uh, social development and, and the politics of economics. Can we disassociate those things? Are they all, or are they all part of the same? You cannot mix? differentiate. You cannot. I mean, the economic welfare, the economic benefits are well established, but the challenges is that uh, redistribution is not always done appropriately. And I'm not. I'm talking here about both redistribution between nations. Uh, as well as redistribution within our own nations. Uh, in our own countries, uh, we see it in a, even in a country like Canada, where we have old tradition of redistributing wealth in a way between regions and between citizens that uh, make our society a pretty fair one. We, we have seen that we have increased integration of trade with lots of benefits, but we are not redistributing those benefits as well as we used to 20 years ago. 20 years ago, we didn't. We, um, the kind of economic institutions that we have were established to meet an economic environment where the US was predominant, Europe was a major block. We've now got China and India, um, countries like Brazil that are starting to become economic powerhouses. Um, have the organizations kind of caught up with the emergence of those nations? Well, yeah, the WTO is a uh, member-driven association and the developing world has really learned in the last few years to, uh, to, 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 to the, 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 the developing world has really learned to use the organization. They've built coalitions that have been very successful in the last meetings. And so they probably should play a bigger role and have more influence on some of the outcomes of the negotiations. But that 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 has uh, really progressed a lot over the last few years. What I find a little awkward, if we if we'll take a longer term view, is that a country like the United States that has really built and I mean you know led the world in the post-war era as the most important uh, and influential player with the Britain Woods Institution, United Nations, and this and that, is almost becoming revolutionary now in liking to go bilateral deals and pragmatic arrangements with individual countries rather than go the multilateral route and with these institutions that they themselves, in my view, with a great deal of vision, I think the Americans have provided extraordinary leadership to the world in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And now we see that they're the sole superpower, and they're very often challenging their own institutions. Whereas a country like China, that was totally absent from it, that is the rising power. Normally, the rising power is the one that challenges the established order, is the one that is now trying to protect the established uh, stable institutions. So we're in a very funny sort of universe. 
in which to operate. What are the risks of, of destabilising those institutions, of moving away from a multilateral approach to, to a system that, that is built on bilateral agreements? Well, it, it, you see, in bilateral agreements, it is always the stronger that gets the better deal. And this is why a country like Canada, for instance, has always favoured multilateral arrangements, because when you have a rule of law, uh, it applies to the stronger and the weaker. Obviously, people will always complain that the stronger members have had more influence on the, on the rules. And that is, this is not wrong. It is partly a part of it. But at least now you have, trans, you have a clear, predictable environment in which to operate. There are rules that have been agreed to, um, even by the strong and powerful. Without that, it's very dangerous because it means that the, the strong power can be unpredictable can be arbitrary, can change his mind whenever he or she wants. And this is why I say that the establishment of rules is the best guarantee for the weaker and the smaller members of these organizations, not the other way around. Even though I agree that sometimes the stronger have had a bigger uh, influence in setting up the rule, at least it's predictable and at least you know what are what is the name of the game. So you're chairing the Warwick Commission. What do you hope the Warwick Commission can, can bring to the table? Well, uh, what I'm very proud of is that we've been able to bring a new generation of uh, scholars, a new generation of uh, thinkers who know very, very well these issues, but who are not yet established names. So I think we will have pretty imaginative and creative people around the table, um, not only people re-establishing very clear views that they've been defending for a very long time. And we have practitioners as well, people who are in the very concrete operations of trade all the time. So my uh, view is that uh, the Warwick Commission uh, it's very timely this year, given the uncertain fate of the Doha round. But whatever happens in Doha, um, it's not a pass or fail. If it passes, there will be lots of compromises, and it won't be a total pass. And if it fails, it will not be a total failure. Either we will have learned a lot about the process, we will have seen where there has been progress and where to pick. So it is really a good opportunity to look forward to what should we be doing, whatever the result of Doha. And what do you hope the outputs of the, of the Warwick Commission process well, I, will be? I hope the report will be provocative and will be helping people to create the way forward for a multilateral trade regime that I think everyone wants and needs. Mm. And this, the, the Commission is bringing together practitioners and academics together. Um, how, what sort of environment do you think that's going to create? Well, you know, the, the uh, academic people always have a very deep understanding, generally, of a sort of a particular sector of the activities, um, not always knowing about other expertise within the responsibilities of the WTO. So what is very nice is to have that expertise. We need it, and we have it at the Commission. But we need the practitioners who can put all these things together. Understand that negotiations, setting up of rules, dispute settlement. You may be a great expert on dispute settlement, but if you don't understand the negotiating process, the practitioner needs to link all these different responsibilities and roles that the WTO plays. Mm. And the Commission is going to be taking evidence from uh, a number of different people. 
Um, what sort of uh, people are you going to be uh, taking evidence from? Well, we're setting up the agenda this very weekend uh, here in Warwick, and we will identify a list of people who have uh, great experience in either trade negotiations in business, in academia, in the, in the civil society, we will draw the list. Now we're working mm. on it this weekend with the other members of the commission. Pierre, thank you very much. Thank you, Tom. It's been a pleasure.